The following podcast contains explicit language. Quand j'étais petite, je me taisais comme une fleur. J'adorais les mythes, mais tous ces mots me faisaient peur. Hello, and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special. I'm Jeffrey Bloomer, and today we're spoiling A Simple Favor, the mystery thriller from Paul Feig, starring the one and only Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick. Here to talk with me about this movie is Slate culture writer Ingu Kang, who also reviewed the movie. Hi, Ingu. Hi. We also have assistant editor Marissa Martinelli. Hello. Uh, so... A simple favor. I think when we all were going into this movie, we had seen the trailers and wondering what exactly we were going to watch. And now having watched it, I need to know what you guys think. Uh, thumbs up, thumbs down. Let's do it. I was actually talking to Ingrid about this online, and she gave it three thumbs up. Out of how many? <laughs> she, grew, she grew an extra thumb out of enthusiasm for this movie. Uh, sorry, Ingrid, to blow up your spot there. But I thought that was... <laughs> A great encapsulation well, of how good this movie was. <laughs> okay, so it's only like a regular two thumbs up or maybe just like a one thumb up for you? I would give it two thumbs up and a sideways thumb because I was really into this movie until the ending, which we will get yeah. to. Uh, yeah, the movie runs out of steam. I, You know, this is like one of those movies that it's like it feels like it's made for me in a lab. Like I could not possibly <laughs> imagine something more suited for uh, my viewing habits. And I honestly thought that it was kind of bad, but I, I would say I'd give it one thumb up. I certainly enjoyed it. And I, especially the first like 45 minutes or so, I was mm-hmm. like absolutely thrilled. I like couldn't believe um, the gift I had been given. Uh, but then things kind of, <laughs> then kind of, things kind of fall apart. I'm going to explain my three thumbs. The two thumbs are for the movie, which I think is a good movie. Um, it has some execution problems, but more or less, I was into it. And then the extra thumb is because of Blake Lively's suits in this movie. She wears almost exclusively suits in the entire movie. And they are... I, I don't even have words. Yes. So that was the next thing I wanted to ask before we get into the plot. Um, I think 90% of this conversation is going to be about Blake Lively, as it should be. So like, can you <laughs> I guys... think I have a good 10% Henry Golding in me. Yeah, no, I figure I figure we're going to have to drool over him, too. And I, I totally support that. But I wanted to know what your history with Blake Lively is, because I feel like there's a lot of baggage that comes with this particular actress, and it has to do with multiple elements of both her personal life and her earlier professional career. So tell me a little bit about you and Blake Lively before A Simple Favor. I think my first awareness of Blake Lively was the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants movies. I think same. Right? Predates Gossip Girl, right? I was never a Gossip Girl watcher, I have to confess. I think I was like too old for Gossip Girl, but anyway, um, go on. Are you ever really (laughs) too old for Gossip Girl? Um, No, but I think my first... Awareness of her as an actress was in the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants movies. I actually really became impressed with her just last year in a movie that almost no one saw called All I See Is You, in which she plays a blind woman who regains her sight. Of course. And the movie itself was so-so. It was sort of a relationship thriller, but she was phenomenal in it. And I was so impressed with her, and this movie did not disappoint. Wow. I'm so glad to hear that somebody is coming to this conversation with an appreciation for Blake first, because 
Ingu wrote that this movie sort of reintroduces Blake Lively as a character actor, which I think is a correct take. I mean, I think that, that is the most magical part of the movie. But Ingu, you did not see this side of Blake before. No, I think my main impressions of her are from Savages, where she kind of played like a dumb blonde, but she also sounded like a dumb blonde, like on Valium the entire time. And that was in the voiceover. And it was very weird having this person who is half asleep uh, narrate this extremely (laughs) adrenaline-fueled movie. And it really put me off her for, like, a very long time. And then I think my other main image of her comes from The Age of Adeline, which is this movie about this uh, woman who never ages. So she's something like 95 years old. (laughs) But uh, she looks like Blake Lively from 2015. And I just thought... You wear clothes really well, but you do not have the gravitas of a woman who has seen almost a century of life on this planet. Like, I don't believe any part of us. So I am going to say that I think that my impression of Blake Lively has also been colored somewhat by her many, many stupid things she has said. Yes. I don't know that I'm aware um, of the stupid things she said. Well, she said a lot of stupid things. Um, look them up. We don't have time to get into it. Like go- on this Google podcast. com. Yeah. So I will. You uh, alludes to this in her review. Um, she had a, a Goop style um, lifestyle website that famously was um, constantly harassed by Gawker because it would post things like antebellum fashion spreads and things oh. like that. And I should say, just by way of explaining why I love um, Blake Lively. By the um, way, Blake Lively is not from the South. This is not like a Reese Witherspoon deal. She's from California. <laughs> and and so did. her championing the allure of the antebellum, which is what that spread was called. Like, girl, no. no she did some horrifying things. And I should say that um, a close friend of mine was the editorial director of that website. And she would, I hope I'm not blowing up her NDA here, but she would message me constantly and be like, you won't believe what they're telling me I have to do today. <laughs> <laughs> So it was like, to me, that was like Blake Lively. I always had like a personal investment. And also, I won't go into it too much, but I I love Savages. And I think that her like dreamy dumb blonde in that movie narrating it is like entirely the hilarious point. But I've always thought that she's kind of a fun actress. Since there's been a few other movies, there's the one where she's like on a rock being harassed by a shark for an hour and a half and makes best friends with a seagull. It's called The Shallows. If you're into that sort of thing, she's terrific in it. She anchors the movie pretty much on her own, other than the seagull. She anchors it? Anchors it. (laughs) And then uh, also there's that movie, The Town, the Ben Affleck one, Mm -hmm. um, that she plays like a very mascaraed, like local woman. I don't know. I don't know. I can't remember exactly. But she, I think that there are some, there were some breadcrumbs that she might be capable of this, but I think we can all agree that it takes it to a new level. A common thread in all these movies we've been talking about is how much her looks play into the character. As opposed to just being a good-looking actor, like 90% of actors out there, her looks really feed in and inform the character. I mean, All I See Is You is an example of that in that they make her very plain in the beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. And then she becomes more glamorous later on when she regains her sight and looks in the mirror and is like, oh, I'm Blake Lively. I'm I'm so hot. Like, she's like two inches away from the mirror and she's Uh. like, yeah. But I I loved how that played into this movie, too, where it's not just that she is a good looking actress. She is playing a role that demands 
that level of conventional attractive and really owning it. Yeah, definitely. And I think, of course, I mean, the way that she looks is going to play into the way that she's perceived, even though she has done very stupid things. And I'm certainly not accusing Ingo of that. But I think in general, I, I think that's part of it. And Gossip Roll, I think, was considered to be a vapid sort of property for like dumb young people. And I think that might have something to do with why people don't take her seriously in addition to the dumb things. I mean, also, to be fair, I think that the breakout star or the actress that everyone thought was going to break out of that, a breakout of Gossip Girl was Leighton. Is it Leighton Meester? I think you're right. Um, Yeah. And so I feel like people didn't see her coming, really. The, the funny thing about that is that, of course, the ostensible star of this movie is Anna Kendrick. And I think Going into it, it's maybe her doing something that's slightly darker or slightly more unexpected, and people maybe didn't wouldn't see Blake Lively coming in this one. Yeah, I think that Anna Kendrick does play the very prim protagonist who has this like flowering of her sexuality. Um, but I I think it's interesting that like with a lot less screen time, we're all really obsessed with Blake Lively's character, um, partly because the performance is so great and so funny and so like lacerating. But I think uh, it's partly it's sort of like because of what she represents and how she's packaged in this movie, right? Blake Lively or Anna Kendrick? Blake Lively. Oh yeah, for sure. I actually thought I I feel a little bad for. Anna Kendrick, I mean, Blake Lively is definitely the standout, but Anna Kendrick has this way of taking nervous energy and spinning it into just delightful comedy that I think seeing her in the same room as Blake Lively with that cool, suave energy, it really worked for me. It was the combination. I don't know if I would have I would have been able to handle a movie that was just Blake Lively doing it up. Yeah, like... Part of it is sort of the reaction to Blake Lively that we're watching. And like, I feel like maybe it's sort of like even funnier because it's so relatable. Like, what do you do when you're in the presence of this, uh, I don't know, this creature from fashion heaven? Is that really cheesy? (laughs) Where she's like introduced in the movie in slow motion in the way that I think a lot of... um, Sunsetals are basically where she's like wearing this fedora and it's raining as she walks out of her Porsche very slowly. And you like the camera just takes in like this like suit that she has from head to toe, like really can't stop looking at her or her clothes in a way that like mimics Anna Kendrick's reaction to her. I think that you guys are right. I should say, first of all, that I would absolutely watch a movie where Blake Lively only does this. Uh, but I think with <laughs> a- Andrew Kendrick, though, I think uh, she, she felt like she was doing what she always does in these movies to me, where she she's very good at like line delivery, especially like sharp, like like lacerating screenplays, uh, which this movie kind of has for a while. Um, but it, mostly, I didn't really feel like she leaned into the weirdness of this movie, which like gets on sort of unfurled in layers the way that Blake Lively did. Where I, I just I believed her a little bit more. Whereas Anna Kendrick, there, there felt it felt more actressy to me. Is that crazy? Do you? I, I'm like like I don't even want to start describing the plot of this movie. Why not, Marissa? Do you want to? I'm, I'm shooting it to you. <laughs> let's start with who Anna Kendrick is playing. Yes. She's playing Stephanie. Who is a Stephanie Smothers? I feel like that's very important. (laughs) Stephanie Smothers, a homemaker. She's widowed. She has a young son, and she has a mommy vlog, 
that at the beginning of the movie when we first encounter it is not very popular. I don't know if you guys were like me reading the comments as they came in live. Oh, so definitely. The way the movie has it set up, you see the actual video with Anna Kendrick preparing her recipes uh, and unfolding, you know, spooling a detective story as she goes. But you also have sort of the frame of the comments from viewers coming in underneath the viewer count and other stuff on the side. When we first watched this vlog, the first entry is Anna Kendrick as Stephanie in the kitchen. And she says that her friend, Emily, has been missing for five days and that the last that they the last time they spoke, Emily had asked her for a simple favor. I love when they say the name of the movie in the movie. It thrills me every single time. But the most alarming part of that was that she said that she had met her two weeks ago. And then an hour later in the movie, it feels like it's a lifetime apart. Like that sets up the timeline in a way that's like, it's like like crazy. They've only known each other for two weeks. All that happens in two weeks. But I think it's also interesting because I think like very quickly in the movie, you realize that they've only known each other for like a few weeks or a few months and they call each other, not only their friend, but like their best friend. And so there's already like this red flag about like what is actually kind of wrong with these women if they consider their best friend to be someone they've only known for a few weeks or a few months. We know what Stephanie's deal is. We've seen her in action and how the other mommy group at school makes fun of her for being overeager and she tries to sign up for every slot for a school event. And there's a lot of catty commentary about that. Yes. And I think from Emily's perspective, I think it's like pretty clear early on that she's a mark. Like the movie sort of implies that she's using Stephanie, but like, you know, we can pretty, it's like pretty obvious something weird is going on. And I think that you sort of like get there pretty quickly. Um, Quickly about that kindergarten scene. I was very startled when Andrew Rennell showed up. Like, I didn't know that he was in this movie. And I'm kind of sad that all the work he can get on screen is like, like sassy gay kindergarten dad. Like, is there not is there not more for him? I would be sad if he didn't play it so well. When he first appeared on screen, I was like, oh, is this what Andrew Reynolds is doing? But he had such good and unexpected moments in the movie. Like, he's the hero at the end, which we'll get to. Yeah, but yes. I suppose that's true. I agree that there should be other roles for him. This should not be all he, he winds up doing. Yes, I agree. So we see Anna Kendrick alone as, like, the one mom that nobody else wants to deal with. And as she's about to take her son home after school, then that is when she first encounters Blake Lively's character again as she's like walking out into the rain in this like beautiful outfit and basically Blake Lively is like I'm gonna go get a drink do you want one and Anna Kendrick is like yes um (laughs) but not before ridiculing her um choice of martinis which we will also get to later this is a point of contention (laughs) I would like everyone to know that Jeff and I are barely on speaking terms over this martini scene we're coming to the martini scene. Please, Ingu, lead us to the martini scene. So they go back to um, Emily's house. And it's just sort of like this like empty glass box, essentially. And uh, there is for... one piece of art that's very important in this oh, yes, otherwise very is... sterile, ordinary environment, which is a painting. Yes. <laughs> I'll let you tell it, Ingu. <laughs> This glass box where there really seems to be nothing. It's just like all 
hard lines everywhere. And then you see like this one splash of color on the wall. And it is a pube centric portrait of Emily, where you can barely see her face, but you can definitely see her pelvis in close focus. And one of the great things I think about this movie is that that painting is in almost every single shot of the (laughs) living room, so that you can never escape that painting. Yeah, it's sort of also like a Chekhov's gun situation where like, it's like so prominent that you know that later it's going to be like a key plot point. And sure enough, uh, it turns out to be. There's also a beautiful scene here where there's like a scene where Emily decides to get comfortable and she takes off her suit jacket and you discover that she is not wearing like a shirt inside her suit. She's only wearing a vest and then like a dicky and sleeves and there's a part where she removes the dicky (laughs) (laughs) i don't know how to describe this but it's just like it's very similar to a scene where you see like a woman undressing for a man and she suddenly takes off her bra or something there's this like very purposeful uh seduction of Stephanie, and even though their relationship seems to be like mostly platonic, really, um, there are definitely these scenes where Emily is trying to like almost prove to Stephanie how like sexy she is and how Stephanie just could never measure up in a sexual way to what Emily is, which I think will also. Uh, be important in terms of what happens later on. I had such a different read on their relationship, especially in those early scenes. I There was definitely the homoeroticism was thick in the air. I mean, later in the movie, they do kiss once. But I don't think it was a case of Emily trying to undermine Stephanie or make her feel inferior. I thought it was more of like a psychosexual mind game going on. I mean, yeah, at this point in the movie, we, we also don't know. We know Emily's missing, but we don't know what the deal is. And with that knowledge in mind, uh, there's definitely a menace to it, but I don't know that it was belittling her or anything like that, like trying to prove that she's not sexually on the same level. There's like a, literally a line where Emily tells Stephanie her new, like, acquaintance like oh i guess prudes are human too referring but she's to trying to extract her sexual experiences i don't think she actually thinks that stephanie is a prude because as we find out stephanie's sexual history is much more illicit than emily's is yes i agree i think that what's happening there in the beginning is that she's like she's sizing her up because she's seeing what kind of mark she can be for the scheme but i think as she learns more and more about stephanie and the fucked up things that she's done in particular brother fucker i think that um (laughs) i think that uh she i think she becomes i think she becomes genuinely intrigued by her in that light Okay, so the one other detail that we learn about uh, Stephanie is that uh, she basically gets drunk and she tells Emily that she had sex with a half-brother that she didn't know existed right after her father's funeral. And so... (laughs) She doesn't quite uh, tell her, though. 
Right. She, she, you can read between the lines, and we as the audience know what happens because we see flashbacks of them actually having sex. Frankly, I found some of the stu- the stuff kind of fetishistic, like with them, to the point where it was like a little bit silly. Like I, like the scene where they're like, the, you know, we find out later that they're like full on getting it on and stuff. It's just like I thought it was a little bit overheated. To I thought I thought they could have kept it at suggestion. This is where we learn that Stephanie is a terrible liar because when Emily says you had sex with him, she goes into this routine of. Ah, I didn't. But she doesn't outright deny it. You know what I mean? It's part of the movie's sort of interesting way of dealing with unreliable narration, which I apparently is a part important part of the book, um, where it shows us what happened, but the characters lie. And it's like it's not the movie's never itself unreliable, but it's just like it always kind of shows us the truth, or at least that's the way I interpreted it as it was going along. Does that seem right? For sure. Yeah. So now that Emily has this possible blackmail material, there, I think like a couple of other days pass by and Emily asks Stephanie, can you bring my son home? And then she disappears. We should note, too, that there have definitely been some red flags along the way. Uh, for instance, when Stephanie, who is this over exuberant class mom, tries to take Emily's picture, she flips out and says, delete it. She says something to the effect of her son would be better off if she put like a bullet in her head. Which Stephanie is alarmed by, but sort she of says brushes the best off. thing that she could do for her son is to kill herself. Yes, and that's like one of the only times that you actually see a little bit of lack of concern on Stephanie's face. Everything in this movie is clearly exaggerated, but that's a real moment when I think that it's like meant to be more of like a, uh oh, something might actually really be wrong with Emily. And Emily has a clear drinking problem. Yes, I mean, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> So when they're in the apartment and they're describing their or they're in their home in Connecticut and they're describing all of these things, Emily describes in some detail her ideal martini. In fact, she makes a few different versions, but the one that she lands on is one that's in a frozen glass with a gin that's also frozen. And instead of like diluting the gin, she just puts it into a glass, like straight gin, and drinks it. Which I found to be such an abomination up for that character who supposedly has this like unassailable taste and like everything is like detailed and like very specific and she has like things five steps ahead. I'm sorry. Would she really drink that martini? Jeff and I have very different interpretations of this scene. I see it as playing into the whole dynamic where Emily is testing Stephanie and doing shocking things in an effort to lower her inhibitions. I don't think that was a sincere drink that she's interested in. Although if it is, I think that's also (laughs) fascinating because it speaks to the fact that maybe she's not actually this sophisticated. Maybe that's window dressing for her covering something up. I think that this plays into what Ingu was saying before, which is that rolling out all of these like class markers as a sort of a way to, to lord over Stephanie. And I think that that... I think it's a it's a it's a misnote in the movie, and anyone who drinks martinis regularly, I think, will have the same reaction. And also, like aviation gin, got to be the biggest sponsor of this movie, right? Every shot of them doing these martinis is like aviation, aviation, and all throughout the movie, it keeps coming up over and over. There were I others the, too. I saw the Nutribullet uh, logo several times. Yeah, and also, I'm sorry, she would have she would not have a Nutribullet. She would have something much she has something much nicer than that's the cheap one that you buy off of Amazon when you don't want to buy a Vitamix or whatever. There may or may not be aviation gin in the Slade kitchen right now. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that later. Uh but that's definitely <laughs> that may or may not um be uh for later in the show. So, 
The first suspect is immediately going to be the husband, right? The husband, Henry Golding, poor Henry Golding, who we have not given quite enough attention <laughs> up until this point. Uh, Henry Golding, who had his breakout role just months ago, not that long ago, in Crazy Rich Asians, appears in a somewhat similar role in this movie in that he is a devoted partner uh, kind of a who is not maybe not the brightest, okay, but very charming and likable in a hunky, wholesome sure, way. way. I did not have my stopwatch out, but it took a long time for Henry Golding to take his shirt off in this movie. I felt like it was it was too long. I was waiting. He comes at the first scene he's in, he's immediately making out with Blake Lively. They could have at least just disrobed him. Yeah. Well, there was some question before this movie of whether or not he actually can act, right? And in Crazy Rich Agents, maybe he can, maybe he can. Like, he's just such a charming character in that movie and such a placeholder for, like, whoever, and it's not really about him that it doesn't really matter. But I think he was fine in this. I think he's good. I think, I mean, it, again, it plays on his looks, just like Blake Lively. It definitely demands less capital A acting. But yes. I think he does a, <laughs> a good job in the role. I'm going to say here that I actually really like it when uh, there is some sort of acknowledgement by a movie that everyone involved or maybe even some of the characters are ridiculously good looking. <laughs> um, just I just appreciate that level of honesty. I think so, too. I mean, the first time we meet him in this movie, he's sucking face hard with Blake Lively. And it's kind of like, wow, like Stephanie looks on longingly. And there's like a few layers to that scene. But it's like certainly very fun to watch. And the movie knows exactly what it's doing. And also the fact that we there are a lot of layers to a lot of the early scenes, I think, is really indicative of the fact that it's actually a good movie, guys. I <laughs> I think I am like very easy to convince on this point because I'm, I mean, I'm be honest. I'm going to see the movie again with my friend tonight. She's like, we have to go see it when it's second fun. it comes out. I'm certainly going to go see it again. I think I don't want to get ahead again, but I do think it's so much fun. And especially in these early scenes, it is so brisk and it's just, it just has this like weird manic energy where everything seems like it can snap at any moment. And it's, it's just very, it is very the fun. The word that comes to mind is deranged. This was a, the pace of this movie. And the things that happen in it, in describing them, they you can't quite convey the amount of energy and just fun of watching. Like Henry Golding and Blake Lively sucking face while Anna Kendrick looks on in going through a range of emotions is like what I want from this movie. It was just so much sharper and funnier than I thought it was going to be. I really didn't know what to expect, but it, it had, especially in the early scenes, like... Just like a very consistent, strong wit and manic energy that I think is pretty rare. So I think one of the ways that the movie starts sort of becoming more of the movie it's going to become after we get these early scenes is that uh, Stephanie feels like the local cops aren't really doing enough to find Emily. Mm -hmm. And so she decides to sneak into Emily's office to see what she can find there. And so she takes out like an Hermes scarf out of her closet and sort of tries to um, pose as the kind of woman who would belong in a super chic, super snobby fashion agency. She has, I think, like one really great moment of like sassying it up um, to Emily's boss. And in 
uh, Emily's office, she finds this poster of Emily, like, from a while ago, looking pretty sort of, like, roughed up, or not roughed up, looking kind of like not the polished Emily that we have met so far. And it says under it, gotta have faith. The scene was really interesting because, first of all, we see Stephanie employing some of the things she learned from Emily, Mm -hmm. like not apologizing and how sometimes you have to get in someone's face and they'll back down. Yeah, I did love that. It's like total like wish fulfillment, but it's very fun. Also having Anna Kendrick slink around the office, even though everything is made of glass and she can very (laughs) easily be seen, was funny. Though I didn't really care for Rupert Friend doing this sort of like Tom Ford and drag or whatever it was supposed to be. That was like one of the off keynotes in the movie that Tom Ford wishes he was. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So they they explicitly they make the reference explicit. and, And I also didn't think that was totally necessary. But just like. As the movie goes along, I think some of its beats land a little bit less cleanly. And I think that that was one that I, I don't know. Why does he need to do that? I, you know, he's like, he's just it's a weird actor for that role and like a weird um, sort of like gay face situation that like I didn't totally get, especially in a movie like this that so clearly, clearly panders to gay audiences. Mm. It's like, I don't understand what else who this is for, if not for um, gay men drinking martinis. This, I mean, this movie is a thriller while also in a lot of ways parodying and making fun of thrillers sort of like a funny gone girl it definitely fell into that trap of these scenes where something was definitely to be gained but i just don't know i found myself thinking about this scene after the movie ended and i don't know that i was supposed to you know what Mm, i mean yeah i think ingu is right that it sets up the detective work that is going to lay the framework for the rest of the movie because we're at this point we're caught up on the um the the vlogging the two weeks are like gone or that's what it is it's two weeks from the mommy blogging thing at the beginning right so now we're at like present time like we're watching it as it's unfolding as opposed to knowing something is coming hmm. and so well, I, th- I think a really great tension in the movie is that there is the part of her that definitely wants to find out um what happened to emily Uh, But then there is also the other part of Stephanie that sort of just wants to take over from Emily's life. Um, She, in the same way that she slept with her half-brother, like, just sort of, like, very quickly uh, after her father's death, when the cops come to the house and say that Emily has been found dead in a summer camp in Michigan. In the lake, Um, specifically. Yes, yes. like uh, she decides uh, that she is going to comfort uh, Henry Golding's character. I don't think we even gave him his name. It's fine. We're just going to call him Henry Golding. She seduces <laughs> through kindness Henry Golding. And what she offers Henry Golding is sort of like the kind of over to nurturing that he never got from his wife. And so very quickly, he's like, oh, why don't you move into my house? And you see Stephanie trying on Emily's clothes and sort of um, basking in this like walk in closet that she can now have to herself. At this point in the movie, where were you on the mystery, everyone? I personally thought Blake Lively is alive. The husband is in on it. That's where I was. Roughly same. I mean, there's. I'm sorry, but the character is so much fucking fun that there's just no way that she's 
dead. Right. Like, like the, I was like, I was like, this movie won't like cannot go on for too long without bringing her back. But you also thought Henry Golding was in on it. I wasn't sure about that part. I didn't know exactly what was going on because um, we were. I think where it was about to be was that she starts getting calls shortly after the affair begins, or basically the the kids seem to the one kid seems to see the mom, um, Emily. And uh, the calls, she gets a call from Emily as well, basically calling her a slut or something for sleeping with, I believe his name is Sean, but we can continue with the, <laughs> um, we can continue with Who? Henry Golding. Um, and so I, I guess once that started, I got a sense of that there was something, I, I, I don't know, I guess I had no idea, basically. That part of it, I wasn't sure. I thought he very well could be. What about you, Ingu? A friend who had seen it like the day before told me that it was a comedy gone girl. So I already knew sort of Uh, more or less. mm. I am one of those terrible friends who like to spoil everything to my friends before they've gotten the chance to see it. So that was like her revenge move. Oh, my God. Unlike unlike Gone Girl, though, Blake Lively's character, Emily, we learn was not actually setting up her husband at first. Right. It was a simple case of disappearing so that he could collect the life insurance money and that she was doing what was best for their son. Or was she planning to steal it? Was she always going to clue him on it later so they had a chance to like publicly agree because he's too much of a dumbass to like do it fake to fake it basically? I, I got the impression she was always planning to get the money, but she felt like he couldn't be on the planet first because he'd ruin it. I got the impression she was going to tell him. I didn't get the sense she was framing him, though. Not at first. Not at framing him. I, she, I, thought, I thought she was always going to tell him. Mm. I, I thought they were, they were both going to frame Stephanie. That's where I was in my head for a lot of this movie. I was like, don't trust him, Stephanie. They're going to frame you. That's why they've been gathering all this dirt. That's why this man is letting you move in so quickly. Nope. He was just horny and hungry and grieving. I think the fact that we don't really know sort of speaks to the weaknesses in the script, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we should talk about this dead body, though, that the police have decided belongs to uh, Emily. She's naked, and also she looks like a person who's been in the water for several days. So really she also not has, great. She also has been taking heroin, we learn. She has incisions i guess oh was she have yeah, uh, track marks yeah and she also has a very specific tattoo and she has the ring a the wedding ring around her finger the body and does, also yeah. we don't know specifically yet but the dna also matches emily this was obviously a twin like this was not even <laughs> part of the mystery <laughs> like totally no as soon as as soon as they found the body and i was like this, she can't be dead. So something really, really weird. And then I was like, oh, they're twins. <laughs> yeah, I that was a little bit weak to me. I mean, it, it was necessary in order to pull this off. I did appreciate later in the movie when Emily says, no, we're not twins. We're triplets. I know, that was so Twist. good. That was totally a moment that was thrown at you just to be like, oh, you thought you knew, but you didn't fully know. <laughs> um, God, if there had been three Blake Livelies, though. Uh, the, <laughs> it's like such a shame. I feel like you would have exploded we and should... <laughs> then you'd be dead and then you wouldn't be on this podcast. I agree. I would have really, really been too much. And uh, and their <laughs> names, too, are priceless. Hope, Faith, and the third is Charity. That's why they both have, both of their surviving triplets have a tattoo with a symbol for Charity, we're told several times. Yes, indeed. So basically after Stephanie gets this weird 
uh, terrifying call from a supposedly dead Emily, um, calling her a brother fucker, among other things, I think. Um, Emily decides to visit the painter uh, who made that very specific portrait of Emily. The pew who, portrait. <laughs> pew portrait. Um, yes. Who turns out to be an artist in New York who is played by Linda Cardellini in a very good role. Um, Linda Cardellini, like pretty much every woman who with a major role in this movie, is incredibly sexy and basically says, oh, like that's I've never heard of this Emily. Like I she told me her name was Claudia. And also she just like took a shit ton of money from me. And then somehow we find out from Linda Cardellini um, that something, something, Michigan summer camp. And then Anna Kendrick goes to Michigan summer camp. There's she like left behind a shirt. Like in this where I feel like Stephanie is supposed to be this like incredibly great, perfect mom. But like we never see her almost with her children, which I think. Like I enjoyed personally, but I was also like, mm, it gets "You're worse. not doing what you told me you were." Yeah, I totally agree. It's like she just like disappears for days, and like I think that we're just meant to think that um, Henry Golding is taking care of the kids, which like that doesn't seem like a good idea. And like the kids just, it's funny. I, I, I loved the scenery chewing in the Carlini segment too. But that didn't you guys think that scene was kind of bad? I thought that was like doing way too much plot work, and I did not think it worked. I yeah, there was a lot of here is what our relationship was like for the explicit reason of showing a flashback so that Blake Lively could wear a red wig to just add to the number of strange wigs in this movie. Yeah, I don't know. I was just like, at least in like a Gone Girl type scenario, like the the uh, the background and this on the reveals, I they I don't know, they felt more organic. I calling anything organic in this movie seems ridiculous. So maybe this is a stupid line of criticism, but that scene in particular stuck out to me as like, okay, this movie is really manufacturing its climax right now. I thought it was very artificial in like a really like fun campy way basically linda carlina's character says after emily pissed her off so much uh she could only draw knives and she's surrounded (laughs) by dozens of paintings of knives and then at one point takes a knife very close to stephanie's face and i if someone wants to say like that's not realistic I get that, but I also just enjoy the heck out of that scene. So Anna Kendrick kills it in that scene. She has that one line. She's still in this mode of being super polite, the suburban mom who wants everything to be, even though she's investigating the disappearance and possibly murder of her friend who might actually be alive. She still says something to the effect of, oh, yeah, the knives are beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the scene. It's just to me, it felt it, it felt particularly forced. But I guess uh, I should just focus on its pleasures. Um, all right, uh, I guess Ingu, we, we normally would pass around the plot torch, but you have really been killing it here. So I think that we maybe just keep it on you. Take us to the summer camp. Um, I really enjoy. I've never been to camp, and I feel like it must be this magical wonderland. And whenever there are depictions of camp that are sad it makes me feel a little bit better in like an (laughs) extremely petty logical way and uh basically stephanie asks a couple of people who run the camp 
if she can go look at yearbooks. Um, and they were like, sure. And so she goes to basically like a haunted attic that's like full of spiderwebs and dust <laughs> to go look at a bunch of yearbooks, uh, which, again, made me very happy. But essentially, we find out from the scene that Emily has a lookalike who is her twin, and the twin doesn't have a mole on her face, and therefore we know who is who. Wow, I totally didn't even notice that plot point. You didn't notice the mole? No, because, you know, so I came up on that. Do you guys know the Sarah Michelle Gellar short-lived CW series Ringer, in which she plays twins that are, like, into crime? I'm not familiar. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. If you like this movie, I highly recommend it. It was canceled after one season, unfortunately. But anyway, in that show, you like are sometimes not clear on which sister is which, and they switch places, and it's extremely thrilling. Mm. And I kind of thought that maybe that was going to happen in this movie, um, oh! But then it didn't. No, <laughs> and we later find out why, because one of them doesn't look like the other anymore. Uh, that would have been good. I would have been here for that's that. That's what I thought was going to happen, but no. So after Stephanie finds out that Emily's a twin, she somehow tracks down the twin's uh, mother, who is played by Jean Smart, because this cast is like <laughs> crazy sacked. And Jean Smart is plays a recluse in this like a giant haunted house. And another way that we see um, Stephanie sort of like leveling up in her supermom journey is that she poses as a cleaner for the house. And so while the while uh, Jean Smart's husband is sort of like away on some sort of fishing or hunting trip, whatever they do in, in Wayne County. <laughs> she comes in, poses as like the cleaner that the house that the husband uh, hired, and starts asking a bunch of questions about the two twin girls. And eventually, um, our very good Nancy Drew figures out that when they were sixteen, they disappeared from the home that they used to live in, uh, which had burned down with their father in it. It didn't just burn down. On its they own. They set it on fire. Yeah. Right. Even then, there were references to the arson. And, like, of course, of course, those two did it. But <laughs> um, well, we also <laughs> learned that they were beaten by this fundamentalist father of theirs. Yes. It sounds like they were rabble rousers. And, like, instead of grounding them, he, like, pulled them out of beaches by their hair and stuff. Like, the father probably deserved, like, the third wing of the house to be burned down on him, to be clear. So um, the other thing that uh, we will eventually find out about the twins, Hope and Faith, uh, we find out the triplet um, (laughs) Charity died when she was like a baby. So Hope and Faith had basically split up when they were young. And then we find out that one of the main motivations that Emily had in this whole plan uh, was that... Uh, her twin, who be eventually became a heroin addict, uh, wanted to blackmail her and was basically saying, I'm going to confess to the burning of the house and turn myself in. And Emily says, you can't do that because I have a son that I need to raise. And the twin, Hope, says, I don't really care. Like, if you don't want me to do this, give me a million dollars. And so uh, they sort of fake makeup 
they go to the lake at the summer camp where they grew up. And Emily kills her twin. Yeah, this was interesting because we actually learned this later with Emily telling Stephanie, but she's not what we're seeing on screen and what Emily is saying don't line up. So Emily suggests that it's an accident, but we actually see her drown her twin in the lake. It's the same structure that we saw earlier with the brother fucker reveal. Like it's the same deal, Um, which is just the way that the movie does. It's like we basically get like the dramatic irony side of things. I I think it's telling us the truth. That was my impression that that is this. What we're seeing is what actually happened, no matter what they say. And we can trust it. I also got that impression, especially based on the way the first one played out, where it's so clear that Emily's guess is right, even though Stephanie denies it and that she did have sex with her brother. Right. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about why uh, Stephanie is there in the first place, the investigation. As I mean, as Stephanie is starting to realize that there is a good chance that Emily is alive, she is also dealing with a detective who is increasingly suspicious of the fact that she has moved in and basically taken over Emily's life. Which, granted, he has caught her in some very compromising positions. She's always at the house when he shows up. At one point, she's actually wearing Emily's very sexy black dress, which is very I killed this man's wife, the dress. Um, And also, as we gradually learn throughout the movie, uh, Stephanie has been keeping other secrets, including the fact that She has dealt with law enforcement before because her brother and her husband, who we learned so tragically died in a car accident, died because Stephanie's husband found out that she had basically had an affair with her brother. And the brother was the father of her child. I mean, presumably. He has to be the father of his child. I mean, her husband also is played by Eric Johnson. Yeah, who was that? He... Is also, I my goal in every spoiler special is to mention Fifty Shades. So shout out to Fifty Shades. <laughs> oh He's yes, Jack Hyde. That's right. In the That's Fifty who Shades that movies, and he has a lock on that kind of jealous, scraggly, like thinly veiled rage issues. Constantly devastated looking. Yes, uh, his hair never seems to stay in place after he gets deeply emotional news. It's the first thing to react. He plays that role in a very brief flashback, which brought me a lot of joy. So she's a suspect, and I guess I I don't even care know if she cares about clearing herself so much as she wants to like know what's going on, and she's she hates it that Henry Golding keeps telling her that she's crazy, and she like won't give up her agency in that way. She like really must prove like what's going on. Another reason I thought Henry Golding might be in on it, even as far as this point. Yes, which he's not yet. Right, we quickly learn this when Emily finally reemerges onto the scene and tells Stephanie that. The things that Ingu just described <laughs> next to her own grave, where I believe they're drinking martinis. Um, do they pour them on the grave? I think they do. I think they certainly have a drink. And at the same time, Emily is revealing the whole scheme to Henry Golding. Who is probably having sex with his TA. Who isn't Henry Golding having sex with yes, his Yes, he has sex with all the women in this movie, which, like, it's, like, fair enough. Like, pass them around. But, yeah, he... His character is definitely like the real scum of the movie, in my opinion. We'll talk later about how I think that Blake Lively gets the short end of the stick in the end here. But uh, yeah, he's like kind of like a cat and an asshole. And when he does get revealed, when he does get the whole scheme revealed to him, 
uh, by Emily, he immediately is like, no, of course I love you more, Emily. I don't care at all about Stephanie. He had a gun on him, man. I totally believed him. Because, I mean, to be honest, like, if you were in this movie, like, you would be in love with Emily, too. And I would, like, I would definitely, like, no, I think that he was, like, just totally, like, enraptured with her. As we learn more about their relationship, though, he does seem genuinely perturbed that he's married a sociopath. You see early in their relationship, though, that he's into it. Shortly after they get married, they go visit his family yes, uh, in London. around the same time. And on the plane ride, and, and a ring goes missing while they're over there, his mother's ring. And on the plane ride back, Emily reveals it. And at first he's happy because he thinks, oh, we found the ring. And she straight up says, no, I took it and I'm keeping it. And you can choose between me or your mother. Let's go have sex in the bathroom. Yeah, meet you in the bathroom in 20 minutes. In 20 also seconds. 20, 20 <laughs> seconds, 20 seconds. Instant gratification, baby. <laughs> meet you in the bathroom in 20 seconds, yes. Uh, so good. Especially since Henry Golding was just in another movie in which a mother's ring played a pivotal role. <laughs> <laughs> Call back to our spoiler special about Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah, I love that plot point, that whole sequence. That was probably my one of my favorite parts of the movie because it's so perfectly encapsulated, like, what a monster that she is, but, like, what a wonderful and, like, glorious monster who I would be happy to submit to if I were Henry Golding as well. <laughs> like, it's so great. I love that. And that ring is not even cute. I'm surprised that she wanted it so much. But uh, I guess it was more about the power. I, I, I think uh, we can agree that there was a whole lot of sort of like a series of red herrings where Stephanie was trying to figure out um, to what extent Henry Golding was in on it. We've just and- abandoned all pretense of this character having a name. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, and you continue. Eventually, we come to this like very climactic scene where I I don't even know how this scene like started. It, it essentially has like the three of them back in the living room, and Blake Lively is playing them both. She is pretending to, or maybe even she means one of them. She's conspiring with both of them. She meets with so Emily and Stephanie meet over her grave. And Emily says, I I met with Henry Golding. Listen to this recording I took of him saying that he still loves me and he doesn't love you. He's playing you. Let's get what's ours. Yeah. And, and then we, when you guys were having sex, he was thinking about me, is what Emily says. And yes. Stephanie's like, I don't want him anymore anyway. So so that's where how we come into this final climactic scene, which is the point in the movie, for me at least, where it crossed the threshold between delightfully deranged and silly. So, all right. So we're in the very sterile sort of combination living room kitchen back at Henry Golding's house, formerly also Emily's house. And it is a confrontation scene where the allegiances are for like half a second in doubt because last we've seen Emily and Stephanie are conspiring with one another. We don't really know what's going on with Henry Golding. And getting back to the mommy vlog, Stephanie tells her viewers, I hope you'll understand what I am going to do. Now, at this point, Emily has publicly revealed that she is still alive. Yes, she gone girls and like drops a wrench on her head and uh, definitely like comes back and has Henry Golding arresting. But he's out on parole at this point or not parole, but probation or, uh, you know, bond. The accusation is that he beat her and that's why... Does, like, her faking her own death, like, relate to the abuse? I can't remember. I think that she framed it as 
He made her go along with the scheme. He has been hitting her. She is the victim in this. And they're going to pin all the crimes on him. Correct. So we get to this living room scene where <laughs> where Stephanie pulls out a gun and pretends to shoot Henry Golding. They have like a blood pack and everything. Did anyone think yes. that she actually shot him? Because I can't tell if the movie ever wanted us to believe that she really shot him. No, it was just no. so obvious that it was like one of those talking killer scenes where it was going to go on forever until... Like, they reversed what was happening, like, four times. Mm -hmm. Like, I almost didn't even believe when the final reveal actually happened, that it was the real thing. I kept waiting for the next thing because it was a little bit lame, and I was like, no, there's got to be one more. Like, no, of course, no, I did not think he was shot. So, basically, Stephanie's thinking is she pretends to be on Emily's side, she shoots Henry Golding, and then Emily will be so moved by grief because the plan was to send him to prison, not to kill him, that she will confess. Which seems ridiculous. Have you guys ever seen that episode of Community Conspiracy Theory? I forget the name. The episode of Community about conspiracy theories. I have not. It is an exact parody of scenes like this to the point where as it was playing out on screen, I thought, well, Community did this better. It is <laughs> a series of double crossings and pulling out guns and the twist of like, oh, no, but actually I'm not really dead. This person and I were conspiring the whole time. That is exactly how this scene played out. So, But the fake shooting is important because Emily has the realization that it's a fake shooting, but for half a second, she thinks it's real and then sort of like um, has come out of her mouth, really, that she was the one who killed her own sister and then sort of like called the police or whatever to like drag to drag out the body and therefore framed her own death in that way and then we get the reveal that and then stephanie is like oh good you finally admitted it and emily is like well like who's going to listen to you if you're dead and plans on killing stephanie um, after she shoots her own husband. There are several fake outs before this, though. Emily says, oh, no, I didn't want you to kill him. I just wanted. And then she basically confesses. And there is a moment of triumph where Stephanie is like, aha, you confessed. And then Emily whips out microphones and says, haha, I knew you were recording me. So I oh, called yeah. the police <laughs> and sent them to that other bitchy dad's house. Oh, yes. To Andrew Reynolds' house, and they're all smoking pot, and we see the police converge on them. And so then it seems as though Emily has triumphed. And then Emily pulls out a gun and shoots Henry Golding and says, I'm going to shoot you too. And then she does her monologue. <laughs> and then there's another reveal where it turns out that Stephanie has been wearing a nanny cam the whole time, and that it was never the microphones, and those were also a fake out. And the, like, and the nanny cam is live streaming to the mommy blog, so the whole world is watching this. It was just so many twists. It was exhausting and such an ill-thought-out plan. I mean, if Emily had shot Henry Golding a few inches differently, he would be dead, and that would be a very different ending. My biggest objection to it, frankly, is that it's just not smart or fun because it's so labored and goes back and forth so many times that it, the outcome is meaningless. Like they could have had three more. Like it, it, they wouldn't have. There was no plot machinations that got us to this point in any kind of smart way. At least Gone Girl has that a little bit. With this, it just does not. 
I just wish that the movie had like there was a little bit more of an internal structure that led us to this point and it wasn't a series of random reveals. But perhaps I'm asking for too much. I think that there is sort of like a loss of the thread line. But I also feel like I had a lot of fun. I feel like a lot of the things that we're describing in when we're talking about this movie, um, both like in this like final confrontation scene and also in the earlier scenes is that a lot of these interactions have so many different valences to them. And so I thought it was very skillful of um, the filmmakers to make this movie where so many of the interactions could feel like so many different things. And I feel like you could read that as a weakness of the film because you might say, well, like the movie isn't like putting you on solid ground about like what's happening. But obviously that ambiguity is what the movie wants out of those scenes. I will agree that it's like not quote unquote objectively like well constructed. (laughs) so much like can't be fun that like i didn't really care and we haven't really talked about like the final scene with emily uh she like runs out of the house once she realizes that she has just confessed to murder in front of I don't know, like a million subscribers or whatever. By this point, Stephanie's blog has grown considerably in popularity thanks to its combination of origami recipes and missing person cases. (laughs) Yes. And so what happens is she sort of like runs out of the house. And um, I think Henry Golding and Stephanie run after her. And she's about to shoot Emily when she gets run over by a car. Well, she's wearing this, like, sky blue sort of, like, 50s glam housewife dress with, like, bright pink tulle underneath. And she gets run over and her body sort of, like, no longer works. But she keeps struggling to get away from the police. And you see her, like, in her final scenes, she's, like, trying to crawl. And because she's so broken, she can barely move. But she's still putting in this effort anyway. And it was, like, very, like... I don't know, triumph of the will, but like in this like 50s like housewife uh, package. Uh, I like, how do you not love that? Especially as Stephanie is standing nearby and going, like, oh, oh, Emily, Emily, no. <laughs> and Andrew Randalls is so triumphant that he hit her with his car and that he's the true hero of this movie. It's true. It, that was a definite wink to the audience being like, we got you guys. Like, they bring him back. He comes in. He saves the day. Uh, no, you know, you're right. I, I don't know why I was focused on this. I guess I just found the scene boring. And a simple favor is not boring. And it should not be boring. And the climax to me was a little bit. But perhaps I was focusing on the wrong things. I see that now. <laughs> <laughs> so we should talk briefly about the epilogue. Can I just also, like, start this off by saying... I love that this movie has an epilogue. I feel like more movies should have epilogues. And the fact that there was one here really, really made me happy. I don't know that I would advocate for more movies having epilogues because I don't think... (laughs) Now I'm not speaking to Ingu either. This this has been put a damper on my relationships with my colleagues today. Uh, No, I think that this movie pulled it off really well in its kind of oh, this is a kind of true story winky type way where the epilogues were so specific. Like, 
Stephanie gets a Condé Nast morning show based on her mommy vlog and has her own kind of detective agency where they've solved something like 30 missing person cases. That's so just silly and fun. I would watch that sequel. I would watch that, too. And then what were the other two? Well, so Emily goes to prison and does very well there. I did not like that part of the epilogue because the footage we see of her is her in a jumpsuit playing basketball, which does not jibe with the character that we've gotten to know at all. If she's thriving in the prison environment, it is for some Orange is the New Black, black market, shady stuff. It is not for her skills on the basketball court. That's true. Um, And I feel like so she's like in in prison for 20 years and then we cut to Henry Golding and he gets to write another book. He's the worst one in this whole movie. He gets to write another book. Justice for Emily. (laughs) I was totally outraged (laughs) by that. And then there were others, right? I think those were the main three. Yeah, my only objection to it is that it was so text heavy. Like, I thought they should have Wild Things did and like started the credits. And then like how Wild Things has a scene after where all of a sudden you start seeing like a bunch of random things that happen throughout the movie. Like, I would have liked more action and less text. But I I, reluctantly join Ingo's call for more epilogues. I liked the French pop over the credits. That worked for me. It was fun. Okay, so I want to say that aviation martinis... (laughs) <laughs> frozen in the freezer and frozen glasses have been served in our studio in New York because we've earned them after deciphering the plot of a simple favor. Cheers. Here's to you, Ingu. Cheers. On the other coast. Um, I'll be tipping my fedora in your direction. Oh, my God. It's so strong. <laughs> yes, it's it's really horrifying, as you'd expect, but it is. <laughs> it, it, needs, it needs to be diluted. Um, Blake Lively does not know how to make martinis. Um, let's close us out here by talking really quickly. What are... What are we talked about Ape Like Live is closed, but we have not assessed. What are, what are our favorite outfits? My favorite outfit was easily the white suit she wears while visiting her own grave, <laughs> which I believe she's shirtless underneath. Or Bow-tied? maybe she's yes. got, maybe she's she got like a... She's extremely shirtless oh under my gosh. her jacket. What a look to finally reemerge and see your best friend of two weeks after faking your death and having her sleep with your husband. <laughs> <laughs> Who wore it best? Emily wore it best. What about you, Jeff? What was your favorite outfit? I know Ingu's favorite outfit. Um, my favorite, frankly, was um, Faith and her like hillbilly garb. We did. We talked like alarmingly little about how Blake Lively looks like Charlie's Throne and Monster, for, and when she has her twin, mm. and it's like totally amazing. For a minute, I was like, "Is this a separate actress?" Like, I was like, but I quickly realized that it's just like a makeup job. But it's actually like fairly well done for somebody who's like lived really hard for twenty years or whatever. She's puffy. Yeah. And and just like it didn't feel like the normal ugling down where it was just like really ostentatious and actressy. It was like campy and funny and like just like she really owned it. And she rocked it just as well as she did like the bow ties and the like insane um, like vest inserts. And I, I loved that. That is a wild choice for that is the gin talking for a vest <laughs> outfit. Ingu, it's restore some sanity to this conversation. What was your okay, favorite first outfit? First of all, I had no idea that that was Blake Lively. Really? Like until right no. now? I thought it was a completely different actress. Wait, it is, it's not a completely different actress, is it? I'm I'm not. Well, now I'm second guessing myself. I'm Googling. We're doing this on air. <laughs> I'm not seeing a Hope or a Faith 
uh, adult age. I felt certain the way that they were doing the camera angles and like cutting, like it felt very, this is a twin to me. If I'm wrong about that, then we need to like re-record this entire special. Um, but assuming that I'm right, let's go to your favorite outfit because this video to wrap up. Uh, there's a very early scene where she goes to pick up her son from a play date at the park. And it's, you know, like kind of woodsy, Connecticut. And she walks in in these stilettos and a tuxedo and these red leather gloves. And you can tell just from like through the screen how expensive those gloves are. And she removes those gloves in this extremely dramatic way. And the tux in itself is so beautiful. Uh, But I also just kind of like the fact that the movie gives you like a little bit of foreshadowing. She has like red hands um, with that scene. And I thought it was like, I see what you're doing, movie. Well done. That is a perfect encapsulation of this movie as a whole. Those red gloves. They're almost silly in their obviousness, but they're so satisfying to watch her take them off. Yes, I completely agree. That whole sequence and all of this, this movie delivered the world a great gift and it's definitely a better place now that people know that Blake Lively can act. (laughs) I'm so happy. Thank you everyone for listening. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Danielle Hewitt. Production help was provided by Shirley Chan. Ingo, Marissa, it's been really real discussing this with you. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. Bye.